this week on Hope for the Broken. Where do you run when chaos hits? When disaster strikes, where do you turn? David ran to the Lord. I know others that run away from the Lord. Listen, I am confident that his running to the Lord is what fueled him to endure his decade-long struggle of life on the run. We've got to run to the Lord even in the dark seasons of life. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part 18 titled, Life on the Run. We are continuing a the second installment of a teaching series that we actually began in January of 2023. We began a study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and we paused for a little bit. We took a break, and then we picked it back up this January, and we're working our way through uh, at this point in the second installment through the life of David. And so far, in in installment number two, we've studied the epic story of David and Goliath. We looked at the the need for friendship by examining the deep friendship between David and his good friend, Jonathan. We also studied King Saul and the dangers that come and are associated with, with jealousy taking root in our hearts. And last week, we looked at the blessing that friendship really is to us, again, proving the need for godly friends. As we continue our study this morning, chapters 21 and 22, in a message that I've entitled, Life on the Run. Life on the Run. So we're going to take a look at David's life as he is on the run from King Saul. You know, it seems like a lot of movies that are coming out nowadays are basically just remakes. Have you guys noticed that? A lot of the, the shows on the big screen, they're just, they're just old movies with new actors. And, and so I've been kind of discouraged by the content of movies as of late. But I will tell you this, the best movies in existence are movies that come in trilogies. You guys know what a trilogy, trilogy is, a series of three movies. And so the best movies come in trilogies. And I don't know if you have a favorite trilogy or not, but I do. But this week I found an article, an article naming the 33 best movie trilogies of all time. On this list were the movies like the Impossible, Mission Impossible series, X-Men, Indiana Jones movies. Anybody like Indiana Jones? Yeah, that's, those are good series of movies there. But the top three, the top three trilogies on this, in this article, was Back to the Future at number three. Not sure about that, but whatever. Um, the original Star Wars trilogies, right? That's, that's that number two. And coming in at number one was the Lord of the Rings trilogies. Any Lord of the Rings fans? All right. Fellow weirdos in the room. I'm glad that we unite. Glad that you're here. But not even making the list is my favorite movie trilogy. My favorite movie trilogy is the Bourne movies. Anybody... Anybody can relate to me on that? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. The reason why they're not on the list is because there were five born movies. That is true. 
there are five movies, so it's not really a trilogy, but I don't count movies four and five because number four didn't even have Matt Damon in it. And number five was like some kind of weird money grab type of a thing. So I look at the Jason Bourne movies as being the greatest movie trilogy of all time. I love those movies. But you know the premise of the Bourne movies, don't you? Like Jason Bourne has been reprogrammed, brainwashed, reprogrammed to be the country's most secretive and deadly weapon, right? Well, he begins to learn and remember his true identity, and this becomes a threat to expose this under-the-table kind of mission initiative. And so the United States government, the key people behind this, are out to eliminate Jason Bourne before he exposes them to this this plan that was that was rogue. Well, this is similar to what we're going to read about in 1 Samuel here today. In fact, I'm convinced that Robert Ludlum, the authors of the books that the Bourne trilogy is based upon, got his plot from 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22, right? Each of the Bourne movies is just 1 Samuel 21 and 22 played out over and over again. See, King Saul is out to hunt down David to eliminate him. And beginning in chapter 21 begins what is known as the last section of the book of 1 Samuel. And in this last section, it will encompass 10 years over the chapters 21 to 31 where David is on the run. He's in exile. And we are going to be able to visit each of those journeys. Today we begin that last section. And we'll visit how he is going to run to the city of Nob. He'll go from Nob to Gath. And then he'll go from Gath to a cave, the cave of Adullam. Have you ever felt like you were living life on the run? Maybe not that you're running from someone trying to hunt you. If that's the case, we got bigger fish to fry, right, in your life. But, but maybe you can relate to life on the run because you sense, you get this sense that the enemy is just after you. It's like you won't relent in your life. Or maybe when you feel like you're beginning to gain ground spiritually in your spiritual journey, you only encounter, encounter roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, and it leaves you discouraged. Maybe you face hurdles and challenges, or, or maybe there's been an outside diagnosis that seems to get you down just when you felt like you were following the Lord's lead in your life. That's life on the run. And I don't know about you, but I can often relate to that same experience in my life. And so my prayer is that as we read the story of David, that we'd be encouraged today. That you would be encouraged, that you would identify with David and see how God is at work in and through David's life. As painful as a time this was for David, it was all a part of God preparing him for what was next. So I'm going to recap the story. We'll visit key verses in chapters 21 and 22, but I want you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. As we kind of hit the highlights here today, we retell the story, we look at a life lesson, and then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper uh, communion at the end of our service. So we're going to try our best to work quickly here this morning. So after David, Jonathan, and Mikhail discover, they identify, they they unhide uh, Saul's plot, his plan to kill David, they say goodbye to David. At this point, David has to leave his wife, his home, his job, and his best friend. He is now a refugee, 
And because of King Saul's jealousy, Saul deploys the resources at his disposal to hunt and to eliminate David. Now I want you to think about his story for just a moment. An obscure little shepherd boy becomes a national hero when he defeats Goliath and is now public enemy number one. And his life, he's, he's on the run. And chapter 21 opens with David running to the city of Nob. The city of Nob was a city that's just outside of Jerusalem on the mountaintop called Mount Scopus. And there, most scholars believe, is where the temple was situated, or not the temple, the tabernacle was situated. Remember, the temple won't be constructed until after David dies and his son Solomon gathers the supplies to actually build the temple. But so the tabernacle is believed to be in Nob. And one of the reasons why scholars believe this is because this city had a high concentration of Levitical priests in Nob. And so it was, it was a part of their, their population. David runs to this very city. And he's on the lookout for kind of the main priests. His name is Ahimelech. And he's a priest living there, ministering there in Nob. Again, a lot of scholars believe that maybe he's training up the next generation of Levitical priests. So he's kind of the head honcho there. Verse 1 of chapter 21 says this. Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. And said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? What happens here is the priest Ahimelech gets nervous when he sees David. Here is David. He most likely knows, hey, David is the next anointed king of Israel. I know that. As a priest, I understand that. Here's David. I also know that David is the king's son-in-law. He married the king's daughter. And so I know that. David is also a great warrior and a servant in the king's court. And here he is alone, no secret service. Red flag, number one. And so Ahimelech gets nervous. David then concocts a story about being sent on official king business, under the table kind of business. In the sense, David lied. He's not on a business trip. He's running from the king. And this does not reflect good on David, him lying. And it's going to come back and it's going to haunt him later in chapter 22. So David has a few guys that are traveling with him at this point, And they're hungry from travel. This is another red flag. You're telling me a high-ranking government official, the next king of Israel, has zero provisions for the men that are with him? Red flag, right? And so Ahimelech is saying, what is going on here? And David says, listen, we're hungry. We need some bread. Do you have bread? Ahimelech says, I don't have any common bread. And in other words, I don't have bread that is available for common people. I only have holy bread. Now I want to talk about what that holy bread is for just a moment that Ahimelech is referring to. It's referred to as the bread of the presence. In the tabernacle in those days, there was a table that set off to the side, not far from the entrance to the holy place. And on that table were 12 loaves of bread. And they were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the priest's duties was to every week replace that bread with fresh bread. So the bread of the presence, the holy bread, would be removed on the Sabbath and fresh bread would would replace it. Well, here David comes and, and he says, hey, we need bread. Ahimelech says, I don't have common bread, but I have holy bread. In other words, the bread that I've replaced. Now, here's the problem with that. 
The Levitical law said that only priests could consume the holy bread. It wasn't for common folks. Well, here David is. David is not a priest, even though he's the next anointed king. And so David says, give me that bread. Let me have that bread. Now, Ahimelech's kind of in a pickle. What do I do about this? And and so David promises him, hey, listen, we're ceremonially clean. We can eat this bread. And Ahimelech also thinks back to Leviticus that he would know very well, like the back of his hand. And he says, you know what? There is a provision in the law that I can give the holy bread to those that are truly in need. So Ahimelech deems this as such a case, and he gives David and his men this holy bread. Now, there's just one problem. Lurking in the background, watching this all unfold, within earshot of everything that was going down, was someone uh, overhearing it. His name was Doeg. Doeg, we learn, is an Edomite. Edomites couldn't stand Jews. It was one of the surrounding, Edom was one of the surrounding countries, the nations, the nation of Israel, and they just hated Jews. This seems to be a historical issue for Jews, right? They're, They're the object of other people's hatred. And so Doeg couldn't stand the Jews. And he's listening to all this, and it's going to come back and unfold on him later. The third red flag to Ahimelech was that David didn't have any weapons with him. Remember, whenever he was sent off, Jonathan shot the arrow beyond him, and those were code words that, hey, you need to flee. And so he fled without any kind of way to defend himself. And so he asked Ahimelech, he says, hey, do you have any weapons here? Do you have a sword? And Ahimelech says, there's only one sword here in the tabernacle. And guess which sword it is? It's the sword of Goliath. And David's like, oh, I remember that sword. When I was a kid, I used that sword to decapitate Goliath. Give me that sword. There is none like it. And so he takes the sword that was on display in the tabernacle as his weapon, and he leaves. The next day, David left and went to Achish. Achish was the king of the city of Gath. Now, you'll know Gath. Who's from Gath? It was Goliath, right? Their giant champion, the Philistine giant champion. And so David goes there, where, da- uh, where Ga- uh, Goliath was from, with Goliath's sword. David is most likely feeling like, you know what? I can't run and hide in my own nation. Somebody's going to out me, so i got to go to a neighboring nation. He goes to a Philistine nation to the city with Goliath's sword, right? And guess what happens? They recognize him. They say, this is the guy. This is the guy who defeated our champion. And he is arrested there in the city of Gath. And so verse 12 of chapter 21 tells us what David does to get out of being arrested. Look at verse 12. It says, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. In other words, he pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate. And he let his spittle run down his beard. Achish sees this and Achish goes, listen, we have enough madmen in Philista. We got to let this guy go, right? We don't, have any, we don't have any resources for this guy. He's got to go. And so they release him from bondage. That's the end of chapter 21. Chapter 22, David leaves Gath and he heads to the cave of Adullam. 
The cave of Adullam was situated on the hillside in the Valley of Allah. Now, you'll remember that name, too, in our study. The Valley of Allah is where the battle between David and Goliath took place. And apparently in that, village, uh, in that valley on the mountainsides are these giant limestone caves. Scholars believe that the cave of Adullam is right there. So he leaves Gath and he heads to the cave of Adullam, bordering where he was victorious over Goliath years prior. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says this, And when his brothers, when David's brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. And David became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now, this is interesting. Who are these people that are in distress? And what are they in distress about? Well, we learned that these are people who were in debt. In other words, they couldn't pay their taxes. They couldn't pay the high taxes that was demanded of them under King Saul's administration. But then they were also those who were bitter in soul. In other words, those who couldn't stand King Saul. And so what they did in the cave of Adullam is they formed a militia. I'm telling you, these guys are from East Texas, right? High taxes, we don't like, let's band together, right? So then they leave there and they head to Mizpah. And we learned that this city was also a foreign country. It was in Moab. Now, Moab is a special place for David. You remember David's great-grandmother? It was Ruth. Where is Ruth from? She's a Moabite. She's from Moab. And so David basically seeks asylum in Moab, and the king there grants his family stay. And there they are in Moab. Now, with his parents taken care of, David heads to the forest in Hereth. Now, King Saul's, meanwhile, back at the ranch, King Saul's intelligence agency finds out that David is on the run. He finds this out, and he begins to gather more information. And guess who's in Saul's presence? Doeg. Now, you remember Doeg. Doeg overheard the conversation between David and Ahimelech, the priest. And so Doeg says, oh, I can confirm. I can confirm that David was in Nob. And so Paul heads to Nob, and he confronts Ahimelech, the priest that gave David the bread. And the priest tells King Saul, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. David did not tell me he's running from you. You remember? David lied. And so the priest is telling the truth. Well, guess how Saul receives this? This is a conspiracy against me. Even the priests are against me. And so Saul orders Ahimelech to be killed. And none of the soldiers wanted to do that. They didn't want to take the life of their own countrymen, let alone the life of a priest. Right? Can you imagine? Well, then there's Doeg. Doeg the Edomite. Can't stand Jews. I'll do it. And so not only does he kill Ahimelech, at Saul's orders, he also kills 84 other priests. And then he goes through that village and he slaughters men, women, and children. And most people believe that 385 people died in that massacre. Listen, let me tell you something. Sin only moves in one direction. Because of Saul's sin, his deep-seated jealousy, that turned to bitterness towards David, he leads and he uh, issues this great massacre. He's become a tyrant. But one of the priests escape. 
Abiathar. Abiathar runs and then he meets up with David and he tells David what all has happened. And you know what David does? David's upset. David said, you know what? It's my lie that led to that. My lie cost Ahimelech, those 84 other priests, their life, and many other people in the city of Nob. And David weeps over that. And he asks Abiathar, Abiathar, would you stay with me? And Abiathar then becomes David's main priest. That's the end of chapter 22. And that's the end of our focus here this morning. My question is this, do you feel it? Can you relate to where David is at? This tragic story, result of jealousy, envy, lies, and abuse of power. And David is saddened by it. He's coming face to face with the consequences of his choices. He's on the run. No one's supporting him, seems like, except this band of renegade militia. And what is David going to do? God, where are you? God, why can't I get a leg up? God, why can't I see you work? And here, in this very story, we learn a great life lesson. I want to share with you one life lesson that I see that glares at us in this story. The life lesson is this, that God uses all seasons in our lives. God leverages every single season in your life and in mine. There is never a time that God is not at work in your life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is stirring even in the circumstances surrounding your life to bring about what is next for you, to prepare what is next for you, to leverage it for a ministry. He uses all seasons. Uh, The good, the bad, the ugly, only God can work those together for good. What is often repeated in our Celebrate Recovery ministry is this, is that God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. God leverages all seasons in our lives. And perhaps you're here on the other end of a difficult season of your life, and you could say yes and amen. But you know, I've heard it told this, that we're either heading into a storm, in the middle of a storm, or having just come out of a storm. And so there's surely going to be hurdles and difficulties and challenges that will face our lives again in the future if you're not already in the midst of one today. But listen, we need to keep in mind that God uses all seasons of our lives according to his purpose and his plan. David is a prime example of this truth. Chapter 21 of 1 Samuel begins what will be a decade of life on the run. Can you imagine running from cave to cave to cave, from dwelling to dwelling, from place to place, wondering where you're going to sleep the next night, even though you're the appointed next king? Can you imagine what life like that would be like? Some of you are like, oh, I can imagine. It's been a crazy decade for me. It's been one of difficulty. What am I to do in that circumstance? I simply want to remind you, God uses all things for your good and his glory. How can you say that? 
Well, make no mistake, this was probably one of the darkest moments in David's life. But do you know what came out of it? It was in this time period, what was unfolding in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, that David wrote many of the Psalms that he penned. You want to know what Psalms came from these two chapters? Psalm 18, 34, 52, 54, 57, 59, 63, 124, 138, and 142. Those Psalms that still bless us and speak to our hearts today. See, God was using David's life for something much bigger than what David could possibly imagine. Now, here's where this applies to our lives. Where do you run when chaos hits? When disaster strikes, where do you turn? David ran to the Lord. I know others that run away from the Lord in those circumstances. But it's always best to run to the Lord. How do we know David ran to the Lord? Where's the first place David went when he was on the run? To Nob. What was at Nob? The tabernacle. Priests to give him godly advice. Listen, I am confident that his running to the Lord at Nob is what fueled him to endure his decade-long struggle of life on the run. We've got to run to the Lord even in the dark seasons of life. Not only did running to the Lord fuel David's faith, but it's also what afforded God to leverage it for kingdom purposes. You and I, when we experience what many theologians call the dark night of the soul, what we would call clinical depression, we could turn to the Psalms. We could find solace in the truth of God's word. Aren't you grateful for the Psalms? But if David doesn't have this season in his life, do we have the blessing of the Psalms? At least not to the extent that we understand it by understanding this story. Sounds kind of strange, but I sure am glad David went through the dark night of the soul. I'm sure glad David experienced God even in the depressive times of his life so that he could pen words that would speak life to me and to you today. I want to give you a few examples. Knowing this backstory from those Psalms that he wrote in this time period of his life, turn to Psalm chapter 34 with me. If you would, flip on over to Psalm chapter 34. And what I want to first point out to you is what is called the inscription, what is written prior to the psalm. Because it tells us, it's in the inscription of many of the psalms that we learn and understand the background by which the psalm is written. This is the case. Psalm 34 has an inscription. It says that it is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is different than Ahimelech, right? I'm telling you, these names in the Bible are crazy. One of my classes, the final, in seminary, the final was 100 fill-in-the-blank, and I had to know if this was Abimelech or Ahimelech, uh, Josiah or Joshas or whatever it was. I can't get the names mixed up, but but Abimelech, not Ahimelech, Abimelech is a title of a Philistine king. It's just like we would say king so-and-so. Abimelech, and we know it to be Achish. So all that to say that Psalm 34 was when he changed his behavior before, before Achish so that he drove him out and he went away. 
That's what Psalm 34 was written in, that context. I want to zoom in on verse 4 of Psalm 34. This is what David says. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. In one of David's darkest moments, he says, I sought the Lord, and the Lord answered me. Now, I will tell you this. I don't know when that answer came. I don't think it was immediate. Because remember, where does David run from this moment? He runs to a cave. (laughs) But maybe he sought the deliverance out of the jail cell as God's enacting upon his cry. The point is, is that at the proper time, you need to know God will work and God will show up in your life if you seek him. Seek him. You can hold on to that. Now flip on over to Psalm 56. Psalm 56 was also written in the same time period. What the events that are unfolding, 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. This psalm also has an inscription to it. Its inscription reads, to the choir master, according to the dove of far off, of far off terebinths, a mittam of David. I don't know what that means, okay? But to David, it's of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Again, when he was arrested in Gath. Same time period as Psalm 34, but Psalm 56, I want to read to you the entire psalm. This is what David says while he's arrested. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. In other words, I can't catch a break. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. All they do is stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they ever escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O oh God. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Listen, you can't say that until you've experienced that. And David says, this I know. One thing I know is that God is for me. Verse 10, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, God. I'll render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. See, it's in the fire. It's in the fire that David senses the Lord's presence. Isn't that true often of our lives? It's in the fire when we see the Lord show up in our life. One more psalm, Psalm 142. The inscription of this psalm, tells us that David wrote this when he was in the cave. Which cave? I think it's in the cave of Adullam. That David pens this. And it's actually a prayer 
David prays in this desperate situation. Look at what he says, Psalm 142, verse 1. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name, and the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. The point is, and we could read psalm after psalm after psalm, the point is that God was using even this dark time in David's life. And can I tell you a truth? If it's true for David that God uses all seasons of life, it's true for you. In fact, we see this play out in Bible characters time and time and time again. Joseph sold into slavery to become the second in command so that he could not only provide for himself, but provide for the entire nation of Israel. Moses, who acted in anger, killed a man, wandered in the wilderness, thought his life was technically over, couldn't do anything from this point on, yet God calls him to lead his people out of bondage. Elijah, after he defeated the Baals and called down fire from heaven, he runs into Jezebel and he pouts and gets depressed and God shows up in his midst. What about the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul wanted to be traveling and preaching and taking the gospel in all places. Instead, he found himself imprisoned and in chains and often running into roadblocks, shipwrecked, snake bit. You name it, it happened to Paul. But Paul understood that God uses all seasons because it's in those seasons that Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. What about the early church? The early church, our ancestors could echo this truth. God uses all things. You want to talk about life on the run? They were running from their lives. From just meeting together, brought the sword upon them, took their life for their faith. But yet the fellowship of this church, the fellowship of the community of God was so rich that it was worth the risk. See, God uses all seasons in our lives. If you're hurting today, if you're running, you're discouraged, depressed, enduring hardship, can't see a way out, listen, God wants to use it. God wants to tend to your soul. God wants to reveal his presence in that very darkness. My encouragement to you is to do like David, to run to him, not from him, to seek the Lord. And as David says in one of his psalms during this time period, he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Listen, a personal relationship with Jesus, with God, has profound benefits. One of them be that we know the end of the story. David came to a place and he said, what can flesh do to me? In other words, what can a man do to me? Can't do anything. Why? Because the Lord is at work in and through my life. 
Have you come to that place where you can trust the Lord, where you have trusted the Lord, where you've seen evidence of him working even in the darkest night of your soul? You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.